blessing to be with you all here again and uh, worship the Lord with you and hear the instruction of the Word of God. I really appreciated the uh, things that were shared this morning, some uh, very thought-provoking things concerning our influence in this world and uh, how God is calling us to be that influence. I really appreciate those thoughts. Well, before we go further, perhaps we could uh, um, stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for uh, the privilege we have of being able to gather together, worship you freely. Thank you for the uh, blessing of being your children, being bought with the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, for uh, the privilege of fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your word that teaches us so many important things that we need to know in life in order to fulfill your purpose and plan for us. I pray that you speak to us through your word this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would break the bread of life to us, Lord, and Help us all to have open hearts and ears to hear what you want to say to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning I'd like to look at a subject that um, is one of the keys to a victorious and fruitful Christian life. And I trust that's what we all want, isn't it? to live in victory, to be fruitful, to be prosperous in our Christian lives. If young people will learn to develop and value this virtue, it will significantly increase the likeliness of their um, success spiritually. So the subject we'll look at today is temperance or self-control. The title that I've chosen for the message this morning is Self-Control, A Key to Fruitfulness. So in sharing this message, I'm, I'm preaching to myself also. I acknowledge that I have some needs in this area. I have room to grow. I want to grow. And uh, this issue, this topic of self-control, you know, it, it encompasses many aspects of life. I'm sure I'm not going to get them nearly all. Uh, covered today, and some of them I may be doing fairly well in, and those others that I acknowledge I struggle in. And that's probably the case for all of us here, but I trust that we can be um, stimulated today to consider some of these things. Now, this issue is an important one in the Christian life. I think we're all, we all realize that Temperance is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So if we're walking in the Spirit, we will have temperance in our lives. It's one of the fruits that God desires us to grow spiritually. Galatians 5, where it lists the fruits of the Spirit, says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, Temperance. Against such there is no law. So this is one of the indicators that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. What is temperance? Temperance is simply self-control. And Thayer's defines it as the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. So we are not talking about just pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps with sheer grit and determination, disciplining your appetites, but it is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So while this is something that we need to develop, and yes, there is effort that we need to make on our part, it must be with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We do not have the ability to do this entirely on our own. Now, there are people who do. They're motivated. They have grit and determination, 
and develop these things. We'll consider some of that, but it is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, it is listed there as the last one, but as they say, last but not least. And I don't know that they are listed necessarily in order of importance. Um, Love is listed first, and indeed, love is very important, fruit of the Spirit. There's a whole chapter devoted to that in the book of 1 Corinthians. But there's another list of virtues I'd like to consider in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says, And beside all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. There we see that love or charity is actually listed last. So like I said, I don't know that these are necessarily listed in order. Although it's interesting how it presents it here in Second Peter that it's you add to this. Almost as if you're building on it. Um, although, again, I don't think we necessarily have to add them in order. Obviously, it says, add to your faith. Faith is foundational. We must have faith for salvation, and we need faith for living the Christian life. But it's just the beginning. It's not enough just to put our faith in Jesus, and, uh, and you're happily on your way to heaven, and live happily ever after. And it doesn't really matter that much what else you do in life, which unfortunately is the philosophy of way too many professing Christians today. Rather, we need to add to our faith these virtues, including temperance. And we're to give all diligence. We're to earnestly strive after it. There's effort put into this. He concludes that, or not necessarily concludes, but he follows up by saying, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I have that title, Self-Control, A Key to Fruitfulness. It's a key to fruitfulness. Temperance is so important in the Christian life that it should also be a part of our evangelistic message. It is part of, I'm not sure I can say it's part of the gospel, in a sense it is, but it should be part of what we share with people when we are t- sharing with them about the Christian life. And I say that based on Paul's example in the book of Acts, in chapter 24, where Paul is in prison, and he's, going, he's on his way to Rome, but he's, I believe, in uh, Caesarea, in, uh, in the prison there. And Felix, who was a Roman ruler, comes and wants to hear Paul. And it says there in verse 24, After certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. You see, it wasn't just about putting your faith in Jesus, but it was a faith that's going to result in a change of life. And I don't know Felix's life, but when I read of Roman history, the, the Roman rulers tended to be rather intemperate people, indulgent in, in, uh, their, in sensuality. And perhaps that's why he reasoned with him of temperance. So yes, faith is essential for salvation, but true faith results in action. And so in sharing the gospel, we need to explain what true faith looks like. We need to explain what, what faith is going to do. It's, it's more than just mere belief. It's a, it's a change of heart that results in change of life. He reasoned of righteousness. Righteousness is both imputed by our faith in Christ, but is also imparted and it changes us. It not only results in uh, righteousness in our standing before God, but it's righteousness of life. 
righteousness and temperance and judgment. Temperance or self-control is needed because we will be judged according to our works. Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. So Paul reasoned with him of righteousness and temperance and judgment. There's accountability that's going to come someday to us. And we need to live our lives accordingly. Temperance was part of Jesus' message. When he spoke of cross-bearing, temperance is involved in that, self-control. Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To, den- to take up the cross is self-denial. It's death to self. It's self-control. So this is not optional for the Christian. Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty-seven, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We have to be willing to take up the cross if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be his disciple. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And read the last few verses of the chapter beginning in verse 24. Paul says here, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway." Paul here uses the uh, analogy of a a race, and he's probably referring to the Olympic Games, which would have been already, I think, in uh, happening in, in Greek culture. There, he he compares the Christian life to a race. Now, a race is run by many people, but there's only one winner, and And that part, the analogy breaks down because while there's going to be many that will win the Christian race, and yet we should run with the same attitude. We should run that way, pressing toward that mark, giving it all we've got to win the prize. And praise God, we can all win that prize if we will run successfully. But he uses this analogy to talk about how athletes discipline their bodies they use self-control they're temperate in all things it says because if they're not they're not going to win that prize they need to exercise self-control in order to win they need to give um, a lot of attention and time to to preparation to practice for whatever sport they're competing in. And so it is for us. In order for us to win the Christian race, we also need to give time, attention, and focus. We need to have a vision. An athlete that's going to win in in, in a race or any other competition can only do it if he has a vision to do it. And he sets his sight on that goal and he disciplines himself out of that vision. And so we also need a vision in order to win the Christian race. And then discipline our bodies, discipline ourselves out of that vision. 
Proverbs 29, verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth a law, happy is he. We have to have a vision if we're going to be successful in the Christian life, or in any endeavor for that matter. This past summer, the Olympic Games were held in Tokyo, Japan. And there was a young lady from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, that went to Tokyo and competed in the Olympic Games. Her name was Casey Caulfield. And she completed in recurve archery. She was only 17 years old. And she competed in the Olympics. Now, she worked hard to achieve her goal of participating in the Olympics. I mean, you have to be very qualified in order to even go and participate in those games. So she trained and she practiced three to five hours a day shooting an arrow at a target. Do you think that might get boring? Maybe it did. But she had a vision, and she had a goal, and she probably does enjoy it to some extent, but she had a vision. Three to five hours a day of practice. She had set her sights on the 2020 Olympics. That's when it was originally planned, but the pandemic postponed it, but that didn't deter her. She said, I really knew that the Olympics was the one thing that I want most in life. So I just woke up every morning and thought that thought, and that's why I still kept shooting my bow, even though I didn't know when I could compete. She disciplined herself. And she went to the Olympics. Olympics. Now, she didn't win any medals this time at the Olympics. But still, she considered a great accomplishment in order to even go and uh, compete there. And then just several weeks later, she went to South Dakota and competed in the World Archery Championship here in September. And she did win a silver medal there. And in fact, in one of the competitions, she bested a, uh, another uh, person who had won gold at the Olympics. So I think she's not giving up yet. She's still shooting that arrow probably three to five hours a day for the next time, chance she has. Can we learn something from that? And I'm not saying that we have to spend three to five hours a day reading our Bibles. That's not what I'm saying necessarily. But we have to have that kind of vision. What does God want me to do? What is his purpose for me in the Christian life? And am I pursuing that? And am I willing to discipline myself and be temperate in other things in order to accomplish that goal? Cut out the things that are not important so that I can reach that goal. That's what Paul said. He says, those who strive for the mastery are temperate in all things. And they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. A a passing um, accolade. An honor that is only for this life. But we, an incorruptible, I, therefore, so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Paul brought his body into subjection. That means he treated it like a slave. That's what it means to bring it into subjection. He told his body what to do and when to do it, no matter what he felt like doing. To bring it into subjection means to, he subjected it to stern and rigid discipline. He also says there, I keep under my body. And that means to buffet it, to handle it roughly, or to discipline by hardships. It was written of Scipio Amelianus, who was a Roman general and a statesman that was noted for his military exploits. We said this about him. Ever engaged in the pursuit of arms or his studies, he was either training his body 
by exposing it to dangers or his mind by learning. There was a Roman general who perhaps went against um, some of the excesses of the Roman society and disciplined himself. And thus, of course, he was successful and, and known for what he, his accomplishments. But we can learn from him like Paul exhorts us in 2 Timothy 2.3. He says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A good soldier is one who's willing to endure the rigors of training, go through boot camp, exercise himself, push himself to the limits in order to be successful on the battlefield. We therefore also ought to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he says, why do we do this? Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And that's a sobering thing to consider. How many people are there, perhaps we can even think of some ourselves, that at one time were on fire for God, even preached the gospel, and today have lost out spiritually. It is a real danger. Paul was aware of that, and he said, this is why I do it, that lest I be a castaway, lest I relax and begin to take it easy and become influenced by the world around me. So I'd like to spend some time just talking about some of the practical things of what this means for us. And I'm sure I won't cover nearly all the issues that uh, this could involve, but let's look at a few of those. A few that the scriptures talk about. Temperance and self-control in eating. We need to have self-control in our appetites. Don't allow appetites to take power over you. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and 13 says, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. So, all things are lawful. It's not wrong to enjoy food. God made our bodies that way. We need it to live. But it is wrong to be controlled by food. I will not be brought under the power of any, Paul says there. And there are people who are brought under the power of food. They don't have the power to know when to stop. You know, you've probably heard the question, are, are you eating to live or are you living to eat? Those who live to eat will be brought to destruction. Philippians 3, 18 and 19, Paul writes, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Paul says there's many walk like that. I'm sorry to say, I think there's way too many professing Christians who walk that way. That they're enemies of the cross of Christ. That's strong language. But what does that mean? They're at least not willing to take up the cross. And, and, here, is, and here we're talking about in the practical area of food. Their God is their belly. Gluttony is incompatible with taking up the cross of Christ. We see that here in this passage. And it says, whose glory is their shame. It's shameful to glory in your appetite for food. And how, many, how much of that do we see today? In this land of plenty where 
you can get food pretty much in any corner. And uh, it's very plentiful. It's abundant. It's cheap. We need to be on guard against that. One thing that concerns me is seeing people glorying in their food. I mean, how, take, for instance, social media, and, and hopefully there's not a lot of use of that here, but it seems like, um, you know, too often I've seen pictures of people take of the, the food that they're eating and post it for everybody to see. You know, this is what I'm eating right now or, or I ate last night or whatever. And I'm not saying that's all wrong, but why is there so much focus on that? Control your appetite for fancy food. Proverbs 23, first few verses say that, says this. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Now, I'm not saying that it's always wrong to eat special foods or to, like I said, to enjoy food. There are times to celebrate an occasion with special foods. We do that with birthdays for our children or an anniversary or something like that and other occasions. But it needs to be kept under control. Don't let those things get away from you. Don't let that yourself become consumed with that. And here it's warning us too. Don't get drawn in by the eating lifestyle of the rich. When you sit to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what's before you and be on guard. Fasting is a good way to exercise self-control in this area. And was already announced this morning that we have an opportunity to join others in fasting and prayer for a very special need. Um, Those who are in captivity in Haiti there, in danger. Fasting is an aid in drawing near to God because when our fleshly senses are denied, it helps us to be more sensitive to God's voice. We can hear. We're more sensitive to God speaking to us. And especially if there's areas of need in our lives or there's something we're seeking God for, answers. Fasting is is a, a way to help us do that. Proverbs 23 Verses 20 and 21 says, Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Now, we know that drunkards usually become poor, but the saying here that also applies to a glutton. And the scriptures many times puts drunkenness and, and gluttony together. And I'm sure that we are, um, you know, we abstain from wine and alcohol. We, that's a strong uh, principle that we adhere to, and rightly so. But let's be on guard against gluttony as well. When we have lack of self-control with food, it often indicates that there's lack of self-control in other areas of our life as well. Let's consider self-control or temperance in sleeping. In Luke 6:12, we're told that before Jesus chose his disciples, he went out into a mountain to pray. <clears throat> And continued all night in prayer to God. It takes self-control to sacrifice sleep for time with God. But we see the example of Jesus that he did that. There was a major uh, 
pivotal time in his ministry, and he was going to choose 12 men. He sacrificed sleep in order to seek God and spend time with him. We need to exercise self-control in our sleeping. Excessive sleep leads to poverty. Proverbs 6, 9 to 11 says, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. We must be careful that we don't have a, just indulge in too much sleep. If we don't get out of bed, then we should work as neglected. Um, a couple of months ago, two or three months ago, our uh, homeschool group went up to uh, Sunbury area and uh, we took a tour of the uh, Natural Hope Herbals and uh, also the both the, the plant where they do the produce the herbal tinctures and then we went out to the farm and got a tour of the um, of the place and saw the different herbs that were grown and harvested and very interesting. And then Brother Rick Hess also took us on a little tour of his homestead right next to that farm. And again, very interesting. Um, he has this garden there right next to his house and has his little little homestead. And uh, you probably, perhaps some of you have been there. And if you know Brother Rick, he's a very interesting character in that way. And I don't know how he does it all. I still don't quite. But I, so I asked him, he says, how do you find time to do all this? Well, one of he said a couple of things, but one of the things he said was, I get up early every morning, and I forget what time he said. I'm thinking it was somewhere around 3.30. Maybe it was 3.30 or 4. I'm pretty sure it wasn't any later than that. Um, and uh, well, that's interesting. So here, that's part of the reason he's able to do all the things he does is because he disciplines himself in his sleep. He gets up when... Uh, a lot of people are still soundly sleeping, including myself. Excessive sleep not only leads to physical poverty, it leads to spiritual poverty. Because it makes it difficult, if you sleep in late, to get up and have quiet time with the Lord in the mornings. Because other duties call and there's other things that have to be done. And it's important, I believe, to... Take time with the Lord before you start your day. And perhaps it can be done at the end of the day, but I know it works best for me at the beginning because till the end of the day, there's so many things crowd out the time, so many things going on. And then you get to bed a little bit late, and then it's hard to stay awake. Perhaps you're different, but that's how it works for me. The snooze button on alarm clocks has been, I think, aptly called the sloth button. People hit the snooze and roll over because they don't feel like getting up. Proverbs twenty six fourteen says, As the door turneth upon his hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. Now, self-control is also needed to get enough sleep. There is such a thing as not getting enough sleep and uh, suffering because of it. In fact, um, a recent study by the CDC indicates that more than a third of American adults are not getting enough sleep on a regular basis. Now, I'm not suggesting that we fix that by, by sleeping later. I think rather it's we need to discipline ourselves to get to bed on time. I would guess the only way that Brother Rick is able to get up at 3.30 in the morning, whatever time it is, is because he gets to bed in good time. So it takes discipline on both ends there, doesn't it? Discipline to get to bed when you don't feel like it because there's something interesting you're reading or think something else to do. Discipline to get up in the morning. And this certainly isn't scripture. I think it's been attributed to Ben Franklin, but 
Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. For whatever that's worth. I'm not promoting uh, wealth here, don't get me wrong. <clears throat> now, there are exceptions to this. You know, sometimes, uh, again, I'm, there's circumstances call for a sleepless night. Um, I think of the example of the disciples in Gethsemane, Jesus. Well, there earlier, too, we were saying how he, he stayed up all night praying. And here Jesus was facing the greatest or the climax of his time here on this earth. And he rebuked his disciples. And he found them asleep there in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So there certainly are times when it's appropriate to not get enough sleep in a night. Let's consider another area of self-control. Self-control in time management. This is one of the areas I probably struggle with the most. Making sure that we, as the song says, give every flying minute something to keep in store. Work, for the night is coming when man works no more. Let's turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There's a time for everything. And we need to keep that in mind because time is fleeting. It's either spent wisely or it's wasted. It can't be just hoarded and stored and kept for future use. It's use it or lose it. It's gone. Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. To everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. And we need to learn how to manage our time and to be self-disciplined, exercise temperance in their use of time. It takes self-control to do the right thing at the right time and not just whenever we feel like doing it. And it also takes wisdom from God to know when we need to do these things. When is the right time to do these things? We're exhorted in Proverbs 3 to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. He will show us when is the right time? We need to depend on him for that. We're called to redeem the time. Ephesians five fifteen and 16. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. To redeem means to rescue from loss. Because like I said, we're either going to use it or we're going to lose it. Thayer's defines redeem as to make wise and sacred use of every opportunity for doing good. That's what it means to redeem the time. Because the days are evil. Are the days evil? If they were evil in Paul's time, surely they're evil today. And we see that evil growing, even abounding around us. And we see more and more Evidence of 
the days being evil. Jesus had a sense of urgency concerning the time that he had when he was here on this earth. And he only had about 33 years, but he made sure he used it wisely. We don't know how he used very much of the of his first 30 years, but we know that it was preparation time for those three and a half years that he walked or, uh, among the people and, and ministered. <clears throat> but he said this in John 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. That was not only true for Jesus, it's true for us too. The night is coming when no man can work. Are we using our time wisely? And like I said, there's a time for everything. I'm not saying we're all called to full-time ministry. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. We're called to provide for our families. We're, We're called to take care of our children. There's many things we're called to do, but we're called to use the time that God has given us the way he wants us to use it. So let us have a sense of urgency that we redeem the time that we've been given. Because the night is coming. And soon we're going to pass from this life into the next. Never know when that will be. We need to live in such a way that we don't have regrets when our time comes to die. And while I recognize that Perhaps all of us have regrets to some extent for the time we wasted in sin before we came to the Lord. Yet God can redeem even those things. And we need to just... The time, at least, while we are serving the Lord, to do it with our whole hearts. Let's consider self-control in finances. Temperance in finances. We have the opportunity to earn a lot of money compared to most people in the world here in this land of plenty. The median household income in the United States is over four times higher than the world's median household income. And I would think that probably applies to us here as well as the rest of the country. We just take for granted the life we live. We, we are born here. We, this is how you live life. I know many of you have been to other places, Tanzania, Haiti, and you realize it's very different in other parts of the world. Not all parts. There's actually some countries that are, are uh, wealthier than America. But uh, for the most part, we are part of the privileged minority when it comes to financial opportunity. And that makes it easy for us to be wasteful and not value the resources that we have. Proverbs 21.20 says, There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. You know, it's... And I realize that probably most of us have been raised to handle money well, although this is not the case across the board, even in conservative Anabaptist settings. Um, And so I think it needs to be taught. But we need to be careful, not just just live hand to mouth, not just um, spend up the money as soon as it comes in. When money is easily earned, it can be easily spent without much thought. There is a, uh, a lady that I've had some contact with. In my work at the church office, um, the fact that we're a church office, and that plus we're along a busy road, but even so, it seems like there's a... Occasionally I get calls for people looking for financial help people in difficulties and so it was that I got a call probably a couple years ago from this lady that was needed some help and needed a place to stay and uh, through that through the conversation and uh, we ended up taking her into our home for 
several days, along with her daughter and grandson. Well, that didn't last real long, um, but we got to know her some. It turns out her her name, by her name, I, I was curious, I, because it was a name that's common in, among conservative Anabaptist circles. It turns out this lady would have had um, had Mennonite roots. I don't think she ever was Mennonite herself, but it turns out that she was actually a not terribly distant relative of someone in our church. Um, she showed us some pictures of her, of her relatives, and her grandmother actually was wearing a head covering. But this lady had strayed far from that, and she was homeless. So we tried to help her, and but not just give a handout. I mean, we did somewhat there for a bit, but realized that what she really needs is long-term help. Well, we kind of lost touch with her then for a while, but then uh, she contacted us here a few months ago again and looking for some help again. And she uh, was at a um, she was at a motel not too far away. Someone had gotten her a motel room. So my wife and I went over and, and just said, well, we're willing to come and, and just look at your financial situation. And, but as far as actually giving you more money for another to extend your time there, we're not ready to do that at this point. So we sat down with her and started talking about finances. And it turns out that due to the pandemic and an increased, um, she had worked some, and thus she was able to, she actually collected unemployment at this time. And between unemployment and other um, social benefits, we're trying to figure out what her income was. And it turns out it was about $2,500 a month. And so we're asking, so, okay, so you get $2,500 a month. How are, what are your expenses? This is your income. What are your expenses? And, well, she started listing a few things and didn't really have much to come up with. Um, she was, I think, getting food stamps for at least some of her food. You know, there, you know, she had, she wasn't even paying for the motel room, or at least not always. Maybe she did some, but then she was still needed help from other people. And of course, motel room is an expensive way to live, but she smoked, smoked quite heavily, actually. So we're talking about, you know, how much do you spend on your cigarettes? And Well, it turns out it was, I forget exactly what it was, but enough to make a car payment on a very nice car, you know. It was significant. She didn't have a car either, by the way, because she lost that. So there's someone that had, even though there was Mennonite roots, and she professed Christianity, yet had totally lost her way concerning management of finances. Uh, now, of course, we don't smoke, but how much do we spend on unnecessary things, or even detrimental things? Uh, health, I mean, smoking is very bad for our health, which she had plenty of health issues too. Um, But how much do we spend on, on trivial things or just at the convenience store buying a snack and a coffee on a way to work? And again, I'm not saying there's never a time to do that, but we can waste a lot of money by being undisciplined with our finances. If it's in our pocket, maybe it burns till we spend it. That is the wrong approach to handling money. Perhaps you've read of the example that Gary Miller shares in his book on kingdom-focused finances for the family. He begins by telling his story of this young couple that came to him for some advice for their finances. They, you know, they're having a little bit of trouble and didn't think they were doing too bad. But So he started asking them questions. and um, Well, it turns out they had two cars. They're making payments on both of them. And uh, various things that they were spending money on and Trying to get an idea about how much they, you know, what their assets were, what their expenses were, and well, it turns out they had some credit cards, and there's some debt on their credit cards, and a balance had grown on that, and various things. So until it was all said and done, and you so considered their debt versus their assets, he noticed they did they really weren't worth very much, and but they both walked in with large drinks, and they had picked up the convenience store, and. 
he noted that, you know, it's ironically significant part of their net worth was represented in those two drinks that they carried. Um, so let's be careful and exercise self-control in our finances. God has called us to work, not just so we can live it up and enjoy all the conveniences that we have, but so that we can give to those who need, so that we can give to build God's kingdom and provide for our families. We do need to do that. It's right to use our money wisely and, and uh, prepare, consider for the future, I believe. But exercise self-control in our finances. We need to recognize that we're only stewards of the resources we have. We're not owners. Our possessions are not our own. We have them to use for God's glory. And God calls us to do that. Let's think about self-control in our morals. We are stewards not only of our finances, our possessions, but also of our bodies. They are not our own. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 and following. says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that sinneth, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been bought with a very high price. We've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've been bought with a price. And we are not our own. Our bodies are not our own, even. Rather, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we need to keep them pure and holy for him. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 3 to 7. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. I'd like to read verses 3 to 5 in the ESV. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We are living in a time of ever-increasing promiscuity and perversion and is getting bolder and more in your face, it seems, every day. And if you're paying any attention to what's going on or seeing what, or read the news, it just, it's just getting more and more awful. <laughs> and so in this time of ever-increasing perversion and looser morals, it's critical that we exercise this virtue of self-control. That requires purpose of heart, That affects what we allow ourselves to think about and what we allow ourselves to look at. Job said in in chapter 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? He made a covenant. He made a choice. I am going to discipline my eyes, not let them look wherever they want to look. Not let them read things that are going to stir up impure thoughts. Now, we can't control everything we see. As I said, things are getting more and more 
blatant in your face. But we can control the second look. We can turn away when we see inappropriate things. We can choose to control our eyes, exercise temperance, self-control. We can't prevent every evil thought from entering our mind. But we can choose to bring it into captivity and to get rid of it. We don't have to live in bondage to our fleshly passions. Let's consider self-control in our emotions, and especially anger, because that often comes upon us quick, and then we need to make a quick choice. Am I going to let this anger over control me, or am I going to control it? Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Lack of self-control over your own spirit will make you vulnerable. It will make you open to manipulation. You'll be like a city that's broken down without walls and easily come under attack because if somebody can just push your buttons, so to speak, somebody can trigger you, you're without defense. You're easily manipulated. But you don't have to live that way. You can be like a city with walls. You can, if you learn to exercise self-control over your emotions. Proverbs 16.32 He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. So strength of self-control, you see here, is better than physical strength. And it does take strength to control ourselves, but that is better than the ability to conquer a city. Well, we talked about several different aspects of self-control, and I'm sure there's more we could talk about. I'd like to yet consider the need for us as parents to teach these things to our children. It's critical that we do that for them. We need to help the next generation. We do our children a great favor if we teach them to exercise temperance and self-control from a young age. If we just usually let them have whatever they want, give them whatever they desire, it sets them up for failure, both physically and spiritually. In all those areas we talked about, we need to teach them to control their appetites. Teach them to control their appetite for food. Now, children naturally gravitate towards food that tastes good. I think we all know that. We would pretty mu- they would pretty much just eat the dessert and skip the rest if they could. So we have made it a practice... Uh, to require our children to eat most of the foods that are on the table when we serve them. And if there's, if they just don't like what they eat, they just sit there until they eat it. Or if it goes too long, then it gets put away and they can eat it the next time we have a meal. Or when they ask for a snack or something like that. But before you eat something else, you need to eat this. And maybe we give them smaller portions if you know they don't really like it, but they must learn to eat things they do not enjoy eating. If they're going to be successful in controlling that aspect of their lives when they're older, they need to start when they're young. It certainly helps, makes it much easier for them if we help them in that way. Another thing that I think is important, you know, if you have dessert with your meal, No dessert until you finish your main course. And even then, dessert needs to be in moderation. I didn't look at the statistics, but I know that obesity in children is a growing problem in our country. Not just among adults. We need to teach our children temperance and self-control in sleep. I think it's important for our children to have regular bedtimes and regular rising times. Yes, they do need more sleep than adults do, and we should certainly keep that in mind. Um, But that doesn't mean we should just let them sleep in as long as they wish to every morning. 
It's not healthy for children to do that. There should be a regular time to get up. And there's again, there's exceptions. Sometimes we can't get to bed in good time, and we sometimes let our children sleep late if we uh, if they just got to bed too late. But as a rule, teach them to discipline themselves in their sleep. Teach your children to redeem the time. Teach them to work diligently. Now, of course, children need times of play. You know, you've heard the saying, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But uh, that proverb was probably needed a whole lot more 100 years ago than it is today. I think we find it a challenge sometimes to keep our children busy. But teach their children to work, to redeem the time, to use their time wisely, and not just fritter away in, in things that are really unprofitable. And And when they do play, that they play with in ways that are actually, uh, I'm going to say productive, that's not the right word, but uh, training for work, that's good, yes. Um, and not saying all of it has to be that, but don't just let your children spend hours and hours with electronic games and things like that that are just going to be detrimental to them. Teach your children to manage their money, to manage finances, especially as they begin to earn money, get a little older. Um, don't just let them spend their money as they please. Give them some direction. Teach them to save. Teach them to budget. Teach them how to limit their discretionary spending. And maybe they can have some discretionary spending, but it should be limited. There should be temperance exercised in those things. Teach them record-keeping skills. It'll be a big help to them later in life if they can learn how to do these things. Teach your children about the dangers of immorality. Don't just just try to shelter them entirely from it. Granted, we we need to be careful. um, But we need to discuss the fallout of the immorality that's happening all around us. And yes, of course, in age-appropriate ways. But be, or, or follow the example of the father in Proverbs 5 and 7 who warned his son of the result of unrestrained passions. He warned him, he says, it's going to lead you down to hell. And it will. Point out to them the disasters of the immoral lifestyles and, and the, the, the broken families and like we have in our neighborhood, you know, a, a boy who lives with his father just down the street from us um, most of the time, but you know, he's with his mom some, uh, part of the time and just very unstable family life and, and the effect it has. And Teach your children to value the blessing of a solid, stable family life. Teach your children to control themselves, to be on guard against the immorality that's so prevalent, to look away from things that are not decent. Teach them that. Teach your children to control their anger. Don't just assume they're going to grow out of it, but don't let them just throw themselves on the floor and throw a temper tantrum. Help them to learn to to, uh, constrain and control their passions. Well, I'd like to consider in closing just a little bit the rewards of self-control. As I said in the beginning, self-control and temperance is a key to fruitfulness. So the reward of self-control is a fruitful life, a life that is a blessing to God and others. Do you want your life to count? Do you want your life to make a difference in the world? I believe we do. There are many opportunities for ministry, many opportunities to get involved in other people's lives, to make a difference in the world. But learning self-control is important preparation for God to be able to use you in his service. You know, we talked about that soldier who endures hardness. There's training, there's, there's discipline that's involved. 
in order for him to be effective on the battlefield. And so it is for us. If we're going to be effective in God's work. We need to exercise ourselves in these things. But the result is effectiveness. We make a difference. We have an impact in the world. We can because we have disciplined ourselves. And if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where it says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. The rewards are not just in this life. In fact, the rewards are out of this world. There's a crown of glory awaiting if we are successful in exercising self-control. It's an incorruptible crown that's awaiting us in the next life. A crown that doesn't fade away. It's incorruptible. Everything in this life is perishable. But everything in the next is eternal. It is worth all the pain, all the discomfort, all the effort that is involved. So self-control is not optional for the Christian. It's one of the evidences that God's Spirit is at work in your life. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. If we're going to win the Christian race that is set before us, we must follow the example of the Apostle Paul and keep our bodies and their appetites under subjection. It won't be easy, but a disciplined life will yield many blessings both in this life and in the next. So may God help us to cultivate this fruit of temperance in our lives so that we can be more usable in the work of his kingdom. May God bless his word to our hearts.